0: Welcome to the EMT Pro Podcast, where we deliver relevant EMS content from the field in the classroom each week. Episodes of this podcast can get you one full hour of CE through our partner, emt-ce.com, so head over there for more information. I'm your host, Steve Williams, and with me is Dan and Holly. Guys, say hello. Hello. Sir. Hello. Good to see you. Good to have you. Uh, we have a fun episode, um, which is kind of built off of another episode we mm-hmm. recently did with human trafficking with... Uh, uh, Chad, Chad. Oh, sorry. With Chad from you know who's a uh, police officer dedicated <laughs> forty hour human trafficking is the only cases he works. So um and from he's that, he's the only one, right? He's,
1: he's the only, only full I think time. He's the only dude. Yeah. So for the entire state.
0: Oh, yeah, 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 I know. It's it's sad to think that we can't devote more people to that, but um, yeah. From that, Chad spurred an introduction to a group that he is affiliated with called Guardian Group. And we're going to bring uh, their COO, Nate, onto the uh, show today along with one of his uh, co-workers, Andrea.
1: I'm really excited about this one. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, why don't we just jump right into it and get him on the line? Should we give him a call? Let's do it. Sounds good. Cool. Hello? Hey, Nate.
2: Hey, Steve. How are
0: you? I'm good. How are you doing? Doing fine. Awesome. Hey, is uh, Andrea on the phone as well? Am. Awesome. Hey, Andrea, how are you?
3: Good. How are you?
0: Good. Nate, give us uh, your background and then Andrea, we'd love to hear um, more about you and what, what you guys do for living on a day-to-day basis.
2: Yeah, sure. Um, so I recently retired from the Army. I uh, spent 20, nearly 26 years serving in Army Special Operations. Um, and my wife and I were moving to Central Oregon and I was looking for work and I knew a couple of people that were already working here at the Guardian Group. So started a conversation with them and, and really for me it was more about wanting to continue to do something that mattered that I found some worth in rather than just working for a paycheck or, you know, chasing money or, you know, whatever, uh, people do when they get out of the service, which, you know, can vary pretty widely. Um, so I talked to Jeff Keith, the CEO here a few times. Moved out here in February and, uh, started as the chief operating officer in April. Um, and for me, it's been really good, right? It's, it's something that I get up and do every day because I like the people I work with. I still enjoy what I'm doing and I find some value, I think, for the community and doing this work. So that's how I got here. Um military background I'm a career army special forces officer. My last assignment was uh, as commander of third special forces group. So um, got to the rank of colonel before I retired and now I'm uh, I'm really enjoying doing this. It. It's been a good transition.
0: Wow. Wow,
3: thanks for your service. Yeah,
0: exactly. thank you so much. Thanks. And Andrew so, what's your what's your story?
3: <laughs> Not merely as uh, cool. Um, <laughs> No, so my background is in adolescent counseling and teaching, um, and I heard uh, one of the Guardian Group guys speak uh, about five years ago, and he just shared about this crime and how it was happening right here in the U.S., and I sat there and was like, how the heck can I help him do what he's doing mm. um, and harassed them enough until they gave me a job, <laughs> and I've been here <laughs> for about four and a half years um, since then. Uh, and I work as the team's marketing director. And then I also am one of our trainers. So I go out and talk to different sectors about what this crime looks like and, um, how to identify it and how to report it.
0: Wow. That's awesome. And then give us, um, give us the spiel on who guardian group is, how they operate, what their purpose is, um, so that we can kind of, I guess, identify who they are and what they're about.
2: Yeah. So, um, you know, the Guardian Group is a nonprofit that's been around since 2010, has been here and been the whole time. It was started by a guy named Jeff Keith, who is still our CEO. And the vision was, you know, Jeff was a pastor who transitioned to doing this because of what he saw while he was doing work overseas. And the fact that, you know, there's women and children being taken advantage of all the time. Right, so how do we, how do we do something about that? And today what the Guardian Group is, is still very much uh, in the vein of helping women and children who are being trafficked for sex get out of that, uh, that environment. And so there, we do that a couple of ways, right? Offensively we do that by employing retired uh, military intelligence analysts to actually locate these these girls, these women uh, who are being trafficked and then they develop a lead that they pass to a willing law enforcement entity. And the law enforcement really acts on that. So we do that routinely, you know, think three, four leads a day across the United States. And that, that really is focused about 50% here in Oregon. And then the other half of our effort spread out across, really about 11 locations in the U.S., so everything from the East Coast to Midwest, uh, Pacific Northwest. And we're always looking to expand um, into, you know, new opportunities across the U.S. And then defensively, um, you know, the training that we provide, and that's, you know, training for law enforcement to be able to do this same thing themselves or to be able to identify the activities training to communities, training to, to various groups that are interested in it, um, hospitals, that type of thing. That's the other sort of side to the coin of the guardian group. Um, so we take a really a two-pronged approach to doing this. Um, and the, the offensive side, I think, gives us the standing to be able to do the education and the defensive side. Did you want to add anything?
3: No, I think
0: you covered it. Okay. <laughs> awesome. So when it comes to educating Andrea, I'm sure, I mean, all of this is education, right? I mean, I remember thinking on our last episode talking to Chad that it's like, why isn't this just foundational knowledge in, you know, EMS curriculum, firefighting curriculum? Right. Um, yeah. Is it, is it talked Even about
3: in the day, police world? Yeah. Like,
0: is it more... Do you guys find that it's more in like a found, like a basic police academy? Is, do you find it, is it present there? Or is this just kind of this like dark underworld that doesn't really get talked about?
3: I think it's becoming more of a topic. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say when Guardians started back in 2010, one of the things that our founder discovered when he started looking at how the U.S. was approaching this crime was that people didn't know anything about it and they weren't talking about it. Um, and there's even some research from years ago that show that only uh, less than 20% of law enforcement officers have had had human trafficking training. Um, that was about six, seven years ago that that research came out. And so that's wow. something that he really wanted to change is how can we tell people about this crime, but more than just the awareness side, the like actual proactive, how do you step in and identify it and report it? Um, and then if you're on the other side, if you're on the law enforcement side, how do you take a proactive approach to combating this crime? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's something that's now being talked about a lot more than it used to be. Um, I know that if you have to do an EMT refresher course, it's now a like optional um, topic that mm-hmm. you're, whoever's teaching can include. Um, whereas it didn't used to be. I think that's as of the last two years. They're now um, including that as an optional thing.
0: Mm-hmm. And then, do you find? I guess you know one of the things I want to talk to you guys about today is what can EMS and fire be looking for. Um, but I guess the where do you want to start with that? Because that's a really big you know question for you guys. What what would be the the introductory or like the you know, how do you approach this subject when you guys first walk into a classroom? I guess let's assume we're in the classroom and we need to, you know, we've just introduced you guys and you're going to talk about human trafficking today. Where do we go from there in the conversation?
4: Knowing that we don't know yeah. very much I mean, about this it. This is, at is all. new to everybody.
3: Yeah. I think the, the best place to start is to address the fact that like, stereotypically how we expect this crime to look, how movies like Taken or Pretty Woman portray it, is very inaccurate. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of times we want this to look um, a certain way, like girls chained up in cages, or this only existing on the deep, dark web. And unfortunately, that's not at all the case. This is very um, public. It's walking down the streets that all of us are on. Um, You know, we've had cases here in Bend where the girl gets picked up, um, right in our downtown where we all, you know, hang out and walk around. So I think that's the first thing that people need to understand is that this crime is happening in broad daylight. And if you know what to look for, you're going to see it. Um, and we need to get rid of the stereotypical kind of, uh, things that we expect this crime to look like, because that's not generally how it's
4: happening. Hey Andrea, quick question for you. So let's, let's take that scenario, downtown Bend. Can you walk me through like a timeline? So the time that the, I guess you'd call him sex trafficker meets the girl to when she's actually working, what happens in between there?
3: Yeah. So it can look a lot of different ways. Um, Every trafficker kind of has their own unique style of manipulation and luring and um, recruitment. And in this certain scenario, uh, we have the opportunity to speak with this trafficker after he got caught and did some time and, one of the questions we asked is, how did you identify that she was, a, of, you know, had a vulnerability or was somebody that you could exploit? And his method was to hang out where teens hung out. So here it was downtown, up the river, in front of the Dutch Broke Coffee, um, the movie theater, as well as in front of our uh, runaway and homeless youth shelter. And he would go up to two girls and say, wow, you're beautiful. And the one that looked down or got instantly embarrassed and he could visibly see that low self-esteem, um, that insecurity, he knew that he could break her. Uh, wow. So Jeez. in that case, that was the method. And then he just went from there and befriending her, you know, saying, hey, work, my friends and I are going to a concert. Do you girls want to come? She ended up going. Um, her friend backed out at the last minute. And the next thing she knew, she was in L.A. Um, Jeez. That happened very quickly. It can take that process from, like, recruitment through grooming to the point where they're broken into the life um, or into being trafficked. can take anywhere from a couple days to about four months.
1: Wow. Even so, that's a really fast timeline. Super fast.
3: Very fast, yeah. Wow. Yeah.
1: How do Mm -hmm.
0: you guys... How do you guys deal with this stuff and see this stuff play out and even sit in the same room as someone as this guy and like I don't know, I want to take a bath right now. And I think I said this with Chad on the phone on the last time we chatted with him. It's like this just
2: it's, it's uncomfortable. It's
0: uncomfortable, <laughs> it's gross and I think the fact that it's it's you kind of just want to stop talking about it right. is like I'm feeling that it, right and now. And I think
4: that's what the problem is, right? Right? And that's it's what the
0: problem is, right? We want to walk away and start talking yeah. about let's go to the beach or something. Yeah. Let's go talk about the cool call we had last night, you know, or, you know, go get coffee and chat about something that's comfortable. (laughs) This is so uncomfortable. Like, yeah. And that's why it's in the shadows.
4: And that's why we have these guys on today. Yeah. All right. We just figured it out.
2: Yeah. I think your, your question really speaks to the professionalism of people that take this on. And I'm not talking about us. I'm really talking about the first responders, right? They're the ones that get face to face with traffickers, girls that are victims. Um, and they, they have to see this process all the way through, not just from, from the aspect of prosecuting a trafficker, but also caring for a person who has taken on such trauma, right? And that leaves its mark on them as well. Uh, and you, you can't forget about that. For us, uh, I would say that the, you know, we are employing people who have made careers out of very difficult things. So the vast majority of, uh, of the folks here are former military mm-hmm. um, and so you know again part of the part of the aspect of it is ensuring that they're not taking on too much that they're not holding on to it that they can leave and uh, you know go be a husband and a father or a mother and wife um, that it, it doesn't become an all-consuming thing and if it looks like they need help then you know there's there's an aspect of us having to get them the care maybe as well and you hear that discussed with first responders also,
4: mm-hmm.
2: uh, but frankly, that's another very difficult conversation that nobody wants to have. So they move on to other things. Um, huh. uh, I'm not sure if that answers your question.
0: No, it does. That's yeah. Yeah. Moving on. Because, I know. No, and I mean, you know, it's,
1: it's also really fascinating because it is. it is it has always been sort of like you said, like the deep dark underground. Um and all we really have exposure to as normal people is these movies, like you said, um Andrea. That that's what we think it's like. And having the education for all of us as lay people, as EMS people, as parents. Um, As kids, I have my uh, 13-year-old here with me today, Um, you know, how do we bring this out to the light, and what's your, is that, like, as your mission to educate people, how far does that go? Are you doing, you said EMS, um, police,
3: are you? Yeah, so we, basically anyone that will listen to us, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but we we definitely focus on the people that are going to see this crime most often. So the Mm -hmm. hospitality industry, um, the healthcare, uh, industry, with the exception of last year, we kind of took a little bit of a hiatus, um, from training in the hospital, first responders, law enforcement, um, parents, communities. Uh, we do offer an online training course. that's, That's just a basic intro for anybody that wants to understand this crime better. um, we do have that offering as well, whereas these other industries are a little bit more specialized um, as to how it will specifically interact with their industry.
0: Gotcha. So I've got some questions for you guys. And uh, forgive us, you know, these are kind of the ones I feel like um, are common questions you probably get asked. So um, my first one is, you know, you talk about the, the gentleman, go- gentleman, gentleman jerk going up to (laughs) these two girls and looking for specific, um, signs or, you know, nonverbal language that are going to basically clue him into, oh yeah, I got this one. I can, I can latch onto this one. Um, why don't they run? Why, why, why doesn't a victim run once, you know, this guy who's groomed them, so to speak, like gets into the fact that, oh, I want you to go have sex with my quote unquote friend or, you know, however he approaches that topic. Like, what do you guys find is a common maybe situation or characteristic behind why these girls aren't just fleeing the second they get the chance?
3: Yeah, so there's, um, this crime is super complex. Uh, and one of the things that happens is, Victims, once they once they enter into the life, um, which is what a victim will refer to what's happening to her. She calls it the life. Once they enter into that, there's a lot of trauma that happens, Um, a lot of very complex trauma. The only thing that they really compare it to is PTSD and combat veterans. And when you've experienced that kind of trauma, your brain no longer functions the same way. Um, You know, you're just in survival mode. Where am I going to eat? Where am I going to sleep? Am I going to be safe? And so once victims get to this point, um, and it can happen very quickly, I mean, it can be their their initial introduction into the life, um, can be very violent, can be very traumatic, where they don't maybe have that opportunity to run ahead of time. And then they've experienced all this trauma, and now they're living in fear, um, or possibly their trafficker maybe has isolated them, you know, he's taken their phone and their money um, and separated them from whatever their support group was, if they had one, um, whether it's their friends or their family or um, whatever that was, he's isolated them in some way. Maybe he's moved them to a new city. You know, you drop me off in Bend and I know where the police station is. I know where the hospital is. I know people I can call. You drop me off in Portland and I have no idea um, about any of those things. And so it's very isolating when they get moved. Um, he maybe is going to make them, you know, really doubt their situation. Um, just telling them all the time, you're just a prostitute now. You know, you're worthless. Nobody will love you. Nobody will hire you. Um, you know, your family's not going to take you back now. Things like that constantly lying to them and making them doubt that people care, um, is another tactic that's used to keep them around. But the big thing is the trauma. Um, you know, they get into this survival mode and it's hard to, To do anything but survive uh, once you've experienced that much trauma. So it's easy for us on the outside to look at it and say, oh, look, you know, she's in a hotel room. Why doesn't she just call 911? Mm -hmm. Well, it's not that simple. Um, You know, she's she's just trying to survive the day. And if she doesn't think that there's any hope for her outside of this, then that gets much harder.
4: Mm -hmm. Is it kind of like the beaten wife? One more time. You know, is it kind of like uh, the wife that gets abused by her husband over and over again?
3: Very much so. Yeah. A lot of Stockholm Syndrome um, associated with this. A lot of trauma bonding. Oftentimes, Mm -hmm. um, traffickers will build this emotional relationship with their victim where she thinks that he's her boyfriend and he loves her. Mm -hmm. And when we're talking about young, vulnerable victims, um, they... They're in love. They're you know they have this close relationship. They think with their trafficker, and they don't totally understand that he's taken advantage. Uh, and so there's a lot of that, uh, very similar to domestic violence.
0: And so, if I remember correctly, um, Chad mentioned that the typical age range was like 11 to 17 ish. Is that correct?
3: Yeah, they say the average is about 15.
0: Okay, and so. If that statistic exists, why then, you know, we, we have a 13-year-old in our recording studio today. Like, I'm looking at her going, why isn't she being educated on this stuff in the school system? So can you guys explain that? Like, if you run into any walls when it comes to school districts, or what's the, what's the story there?
2: Yeah, so, you know, doing education in school districts uh, is not something we do. Very often, because there's, there's quite a bit of regulation and requirement that comes along with that. So there are nonprofits that take that on and do that solely. Um, the, the simple fact is, you guys talked about this earlier, right? It's an uncomfortable conversation. It's a conversation that has to be had. And if you talk to any parent and you ask them, you know, what have you done on, on these topics, it probably is something that they will they will look at and say, you know, I could do more, right? There's also the aspect of how are you, how are you not being invasive, but are you being protected? So Mm -hmm. what, what are you actually doing to ensure that your child who probably now has, you know, unfettered access to the internet and a cell phone, uh, how are they safe? And if you look back in 2020, you see the, the rise really in this crime and kids being trafficked. It's probably directly tied to the isolation. Through COVID and the fact that they're online more, right? Mm. And that's something we know now. Um, but as, as an uncle, I ask, you know, my, my brother, my sister in law, what are you doing? Is your, are your kids' phones at all monitored? Uh, and routinely what I hear is hey, it's wide open. It's what? Um, wide open. There's oh. no, they put no controls on their kids' access to the internet, which really means they could be talking to anybody, mm-hmm. and so when you know when I was growing up, my parents talking about um, whether or not I was going to approach a stranger and get in the car with them. I and now we have the same thing that's virtual, or you're going to you're going to have a, a running conversation with somebody that is not monitored by any adult you trust. Um, and that's, I think, a, an aspect that has to be addressed going forward. Sure. What. Do you yeah, guys have just
3: any... to add to that. Oh yeah, go ahead. Do the issue with the school system. If we think back to even getting sex education into the mm-hmm. school system and how hard that was, this is an uphill battle. Um, yeah. And unless there's parents advocating for this form of education, um, it's not. It's not going to happen. Yeah. Yeah.
0: What tools do you guys recommend for, or if you have any that are good for monitoring or limiting? Um, call them tweens internet access or phone access?
3: Yeah, so there's a couple. Um, so one is called Bark, B-A-R-K, mm-hmm. um, and it is an app that will just allow you to see what your kids are doing online. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other one is Life 360, and it essentially kind of puts a geo bubble around your your family so that you can kind of see where they are as far as where their phone is. Mm -hmm. Um, that will help you keep track of them as well.
1: And how fast Um, they're driving. (laughs) (laughs) Yes,
3: It will help with a lot of things. Yeah. But, um, I think one of the things with online safety is just teaching kids, like Nate said, you know, that stranger danger context in person. Um, With COVID and the increase in predators trying to recruit online, um, teaching kids that, like, hey, if you get a message that says, hey, I need help, can you help me? Or somebody saying, you know, looking for some kind of interaction, that they need to tell a trusted adult so that um, we can get those things reported. Mm -hmm.
4: Do you think that uh, part of the problem might be, like, Oh, my kids are raised. My youngest is 18 now, and I always thought, "Oh boy, nothing's going to happen to my kids. They're good kids. I'm a good dad." Um, so we have this parental ignorance, like you know, I'm not, I'm not in a you know a poor neighborhood. I don't, you know, I'm married. It's not a single single mom raising raising the kid. So it's not going to happen to my kid. Do you see that that could be an obstacle as well in the education? Where I mean, this this is something happen to anybody.
2: Yeah, it's, you know, I think a, a good deal of this is about considering not your child, but about the people that are trying to approach them. Mm-hmm. So your, your children can be as educated and uh, well socialized and confident. And if someone is trying to set them up to have the belief that, uh, you know, they ought to go with them or they're, they're in love with them or whatever, there's always that possibility and, and I, I, Dre, I'd ask you to talk about the maturity of the brain and how that really affects how we're thinking. Um, but the reality is I think we're, we're only typically focusing on one side of this and we're not focusing on the trafficker who's trying to build a relationship with the child in order to take advantage of them. And if you, if you just think about that, you know, what's, what's going on online with bruises, you know, over the years in order to, to make money off of people. Um, how are people now utilizing the internet in order to, uh, to make money off of large corporations, right? There's all these elaborate setups. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it's a whole lot different when you look at trying to, trying to build a relationship with somebody in order to take advantage of them. It's just a matter of why they're doing it. Gotcha.
0: I think that's interesting. You know, We are sitting here thinking about the characteristics of the victim, and we're not even considering the characteristics of the abuser. Right. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. Like, why is that? You know, like.
1: I think it's because we can't, we don't, we can't control the abuser. mm -hmm. They're gonna do it, but maybe we could educate or um, enlighten the victims so they don't become victims. For me, anyway, yeah. it feels like we have more control over that than the vast majority of people that are out there being the abusers.
0: So, can you? I mean, can you speak to? And this would probably help EMS and fire. Like who? Who is the typical abuser in terms of their makeup, their background, what their, you know, huh. speech? So is there's like, a
3: yeah. There's no profile for a trafficker. Mm-hmm. Um, every race, every socioeconomic status. Um. I mean, we've seen it as young as 18-year-old kids exploiting their classmates um, in this manner. So it is hard to, to identify who would potentially be an abuser um, in this scenario. And in some some places, it's generational. Uh, you know, they were raised this way. It's cultural. Um, mm-hmm. So it is a little bit tricky to just put a profile on mm-hmm. this type of person. Yeah.
1: If I'm an EMS provider, then the most, I mean, obviously we would come in contact with the victim, not necessarily the abuser, or maybe we would, but we wouldn't notice. Um, What kinds of things could we be looking for um, in our patients that might signal us that something weird is going on?
3: Yeah, so we can give you a whole list of different indicators to look for. Um, Your patient may not be in control of their personal item, so maybe somebody else has their purse or their money or their ID. Right, um, that's huge. And,
4: yeah.
3: Yeah. Wow. Okay. They, um, they may have multiple phones, computers or sex related items. So if you're thinking like okay, motor vehicle accident and you notice in the car, there's a bunch of computers and three cell phones and there's a bag of, you know, condoms and lube that feels really out of place. That may be an indicator. Um, they could be in a hotel room or in an Airbnb or wherever you're responding, but quite a bit of that stuff. Um, when you're speaking to your patient, their story may sound really inconsistent or scripted. And if you ask questions about their injury, um, oftentimes they are they're rehearsed, so they're trained to to speak to different people in certain ways. They're, you know, if you get stopped by the cops, this is what you say. If you get you know, into a hotel, this is what you call the front desk. And so when you start to ask questions outside of, of what the script is that they've been given, they may become really hostile um, with you mm-hmm. and not want medical attention, not want your help because you're starting to ask questions that they don't have an answer to. Um, and remember, they're in this survival mode. Um, and so they, they don't want to give you any reason um, to think that there's something going on. If you respond to like an apartment or a house or an Airbnb and you notice that there's just mattresses on the floor, there's no beds, um, or there's just a real lack of furniture um, or there's a lot of people living in the space, like more than should be there, that could be indicators that there's trafficking. Um, if there's a lot of security that feels really unusual, so locks on doors um, or even security in the form of like muscle and People standing outside the location um, mm-hmm. It's a little bit more common in bigger cities than like we would see here in Bend. Um, but places like Portland, that could be more of an indicator. Um, there may be signs of substance abuse uh, with your patient, but there also might not be. Um, some traffickers use substances to control their victims. So like, you know, you come home with $500 tonight and you'll get your fix, whereas others don't because... Remember, they're selling these girls as a product, and they want her to be able to perform. And um, so, some don't use substance, but some do. So there, there may be some signs of that. Uh, you may notice tattoos. They're used as brands. So in the same way that like Nike and Adidas put their brand on things to deconflict their products, uh, traffickers do the same thing. So the brand, the tattoo may be a crown or some you know, sign that she's for sale, whether it's a money sign or the words for sale or his name. Um, You may notice some tattoos. She may have some other injuries, some older bruising or burns or cuts, but these may not be in places that you would think about. Um, A survivor friend of mine shared that she always got hit in the back of the head, right at the base of her neck, because her hair would cover up the bruising. Um, Because again, they're being sold for a product. Mm-hmm. and their traffickers want them to look a certain way. Um, so their injuries may be kind of hidden.
4: Hmm. What what kind of body language are we looking at for both the abuser and the person who's being abused?
3: Yeah, so oftentimes they'll be really nervous, afraid, um, depressed. The big indicator, especially uh, if you're a male provider, they won't make eye contact with you they're going to stare drastically at the ground and avoid that eye contact at all costs. Um, About the anytime we train and then someone calls a couple weeks later, if they've seen it and we ask like, okay, what'd you see? What indicator gave it away? The real big avoidance of eye contact is usually the first thing. Um, And they may be with someone who seems really controlling and this person might not be a a man. Um, So they're, and I don't remember if Chad shared this in his, but they're um, oftentimes traffickers use what they refer to as the bottom. Um, And this is their most trusted girl. And she's oftentimes given the job of helping them recruit or helping control the other girls. Mm -hmm. So she may be the one that answering your questions um, or in control of the victim's items or anything like that. Um, And she probably will, will step in and, uh, over the victim is given the opportunity.
4: Wow, man! How do you how do you graduate to that position? Work with them for years, probably, right? And now, it's yeah,
3: that- and I think I think it's part of the survivors that I know that it's played the role of bottom. Um, that's the thing that they can't get over is that they help exploit other people. Mm. But oftentimes the deal is like you know you recruit or you control and you sleep with less buyers. Um, so she's getting raped less often if she's willing to exploit other girls, and so I think that's the hardest thing for them to to deal with later mm-hmm. um, yeah.
4: Do they feel like they're the number one girl that's i don't know, girlfriend or however you'd say it, to the to the uh to the the pimp Yes, thank you
3: yeah, typically
4: mm. so one question I've got for
0: you is. And I, I, I don't know if it's necessary to draw this line, but I'm trying to clarify something in my brain. Trafficking isn't necessarily prostitution, but it oftentimes is. Wait a minute. No, I said that backwards. Well, prostitution. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. There you go. I'm, I'm like, oh, wow. man. Well, Steve, have you been listening at all? Um, so prostitution isn't necessarily trafficking, but trafficking is prostitution. Right. So yeah, some people choose to be sex
1: workers on their own, so, not right. under duress.
2: Right. That's right. So there there are certainly willing sex workers out there and, and there's legislation being introduced here in Oregon in order to maybe legalize that or not prosecute the prostitute who is working for herself but still go after the, the trafficker with the jailer. Um and it's it's a you know, this gets back to the, the long-held belief, which I think is a misnomer, which is that this is a victimless crime, right? There are certainly people who do this on the room pretty well. Um, but I think what we would re- commonly say is that's a person who is older, more mature, is making that decision for himself or herself. Uh, trafficking and trafficking of a minor are, are two things that, you know, still... Uh, yeah, are, are completely different um, and also tra- just just prosecuting the trafficker is very difficult for law enforcement because they have to prove some elements where mm-hmm. trafficking of a minor is much easier to prove. Um, and so you also see a, a really a, a struggle there within law enforcement and district attorneys about how to approach that. Mm-hmm.
1: So, Nate, when you guys get a call, can you describe like what you do um, it sounds like I know that you employ a lot of um, retired military. You said that have a lot of maybe cybersecurity um, background or know how. What do you guys do? How do you, how do you disseminate the work, and then what goes on behind the scenes?
2: Yeah, so um, we get a number of calls, and we do some some or most of this um, ourselves. So. I guess the easiest way to describe it is on a day-to-day basis, the, the folks that are doing the analysis uh, really come in, get online, and start going through ads that are posted online for girls that are being um, advertised uh, for sex, right? And there's a number of uh, pages that are hosted outside the U.S. now when that's done. And it's geographically. So if you want to look at you know, hey, I'll be in Portland for the week and I'd like to meet a a girl and have sex, then I can look at these advertisements and set that up. Um, So that's what they look at. And from that, then we've got to determine, well, is this actually who this person is or not? And then if we can determine their actual identity and age, then we can build a lead and send that to the local law enforcement who, who takes that on. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's one way to do it. That's probably the most often thing that we do on a daily basis. The other way that it happens is either uh, a parent of a girl that's missing will call us or law enforcement will call us. And those conversations can be... Hey, my, my daughter's been missing for five weeks. Can you take a look at the following and just let me know if you think she's okay or if she's being trafficked? I haven't heard from her. Uh, that was a call I got two weeks ago. Um, another, you know, the law enforcement angle is the police are either going to conduct operations and they need leads in order to do that, or they want to look at a specific individual. And and so this this really gets into uh, finding, again, finding the person and determining is that actually who they are? And then are they being trafficked or not? So that takes, you know, for, for one analyst to really work through all that, it's about four hours, sometimes much more, sometimes quicker. It depends mm-hmm. on, you know, all of the things you know about the internet, right? How, how much have they obscured who they are? Uh, how thorough have they been? Have they tied any of their true name used, you know, phone numbers, you know, addresses social media accounts to their work accounts, uh, that kind of thing. So it takes some time. But that's that's how we do the offensive part of
0: this. And so, Nate, just to clarify, because I know that there are multiple, I don't know what you call them, groups, or really they're kind of seen as vigilantes, so to speak, of people that are doing this without the law enforcement side, and they're really you know, they're going into communities and, you know, getting tips or leads or whatever, and then they're taking all of this on themselves and not including law enforcement. Um, I don't know what to call those groups, but I know that from the other people I've spoken with, um, they're causing sometimes more problems than, you know, situations they're helping. Um, so you guys are obviously involving law enforcement and helping them generate leads for cases and, solve those things. You guys aren't out running amok with your marked cars and taking this on yourself, correct?
2: Uh, that's correct. No, we, uh, <laughs> we try to stay on the right side of the law on this. Um, and it's, it, there's certainly plenty of media out there discussing other organizations and what they do, and whether or not that's a good thing. Yeah. Uh, I would, I would say that, you know, if there, if I would say there are two things we don't do, one is we don't break the law. And two is we don't take any of these matters into our own hands. So we work through law enforcement entirely in order to, uh, recover a victim and help the prosecution of a trafficker. That's, that's really what we're doing. Um, and it's interesting because when, you know, when, when a new, uh, officer of Ben PD shows up, he comes in here and, you know, this is my second week on the job and I'm talking to this guy about the fact that we don't do that, right? So there's still very much, um, I think, a lot of myth or lore that surrounds some of this. And mm-hmm. you know, Dre mentioned you know movies and how they they portray one thing. This is not, in fact, what goes on. Uh, and I think we're going to work through that as long as uh, as that seems to be the the thing that's portrayed in in the media or in the movies. Right? You'll always be answering the question of. Well, yeah, but do you guys do this yourself? Um, for us, the answer is no, we don't.
0: So, just to confirm, you're not Liam Neeson going into other countries, <laughs> kidnapping the kidnapped, and taking them back
1: home. Well, he cannot
0: confirm
2: no. or, no. or deny that. He was
1: specialized <laughs> for
2: a Yeah. No, well, the, the, the office is very boring. There's a bunch of people sitting bunch of computer nerds. Uh, <laughs> that's the extent of, yeah. I've never wanted to be
1: a computer nerd more in my life than I do right now. Like that could be my life's work. There's
0: gotta be a lot of satisfaction though, in putting away some of these people that you guys are building cases on what, and obviously we don't want to talk specifics, but, um, what have some successful cases for you guys looked like? Um, once you guys have formed kind of that, you know, the leads, uh, that law enforcement needs.
2: Well, I, you know, I will start by saying that it is often, um, you know, 18 or 24 months before we really know the outcome. So, you know, for us, this is about the the victim being successfully removed from the situation and the trafficker being prosecuted. And when you start to talk about the, that aspect of it, you're into a whole host of legalities, right? And yeah. That, that, this is not a diatribe on why that should or shouldn't be the case. The simple fact is it is. And so there there is a long period of time where we don't know the outcome. Mm-hmm. Um, and, in fact, we will not go back to law enforcement events. So typically when things are concluded, the DA or the police officers involved will reach out to us. But, you know, as you guys know, prosecutions take a long time to, yes. to come all the way to conclusion. So when we look at our numbers, we look at numbers of leads passed, and then we can go back historically and look at okay, how did this one really turn out? Oftentimes, though, frankly, we really don't know, mm-hmm. um, and we don't know because we don't want to put law enforcement in the position of not being able to do the prosecution. Right. So um, there's there's all of that. The reality is, I think. For us, success looks a lot like having a good law enforcement partnership and then having a willing partner that reaches out to us the when they need help and uses the help that we can provide. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's about the best case scenario for us, right? So we'll never fully know, um, okay, these activities in these cities resulted in the following prosecutions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for a bunch of folks who really tied their careers to, you know, being in the military and mission success, that's a little bit of a change. Yeah, yeah um, oh, absolutely. Yeah. But but in the end, I think it's, it's something we all recognize. Um, we're, we're not going to put law enforcement in the position of compromising case in order for us to be able to tell people that support us or our donors, hey, here's how many prosecutions we got this year.
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
2: I, so we... we but,
1: Oh, I was going to say that Chad multiple times has said he could not do his job without you yeah, yeah. multiple times mm-hmm. and I, yeah. just, I think that's so awesome that there's such this group of people that want to use their skills to for this specific cause
2: mm-hmm. yeah I mean it's totally. something I think we're, we're all pretty proud of um, and the the reality is when you, you know when you talk to local law enforcement officers they're They're wildly understaffed for the amount that they have to take on, so they have to make very hard decisions. And, you know, a lot of this comes down to the the policeman on the day at the time deciding what he or she is going to be able to do and then support through the end.
4: Mm
2: -hmm. Um, And so, like, Central Oregon, I'm told, has one intel analyst for, for the entirety of Central Oregon for all of the crimes that are committed. So when you, when you just think about the scale there, you know, yeah, the police departments are, are really, uh, struggling to be able to take on the full measure of this and see it all the way through. And that's, Mm -hmm. that's unfortunate. So we're, we're proud to be able to help, uh, fill some of that gap for them. So I
3: think Chad even shared he's the only detective in Oregon where this is his His full-time job Mm -hmm. in the whole state.
4: Yeah. So incredible. incredible. (laughs) So I got a I got a couple of questions for you. First off, what is the uh the percentage of female versus male victims?
3: So it's really hard to answer um for a couple of reasons. One, this crime is pretty poorly studied and researched overall. Um and two, we know with any sexual assault that the male population underreports. Right. Okay. So from our experience it's predominantly female. Right. Um, but beyond that, it's really hard to put a specific number to it.
4: Okay. All right, second yeah, question. And
2: I would say, you know, just since I've been here uh since April, I've, I think I've only seen two cases that were male that we worked on. Okay. But, of course, neither of them had reached out or were looking for help, right? These right. were other people that were reaching out on their behalf. Um, and the under-reporting on, you know, Sort of male sexual assault and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. That 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 is going to be something that you know society is going to have to take on for years in order to destigmatize that it's it's really that bad. Mm-hmm.
4: All right. Second question. Um, as an EMS provider, what do I if I suspect it? I mean, obviously, if I suspect child abuse or elder abuse, I mean, I'm I'm supposed to report that. If I have any any suspicion, what what steps do I go through? As an EMS provider, to
3: report yeah, that. so exactly like you would report child abuse or domestic violence. I mean, it falls into the same categories. Um, so if you if you suspect it, get law enforcement involved. Um, tell them why you suspect trafficking. Um, if you're passing that patient off to the emergency department, share your concerns with the emergency department because they may start to notice other indicators. Um, as well and starting to build on that story. Okay, so you notice three things when you pick the patient up and your gut says something's wrong. You tell the emergency department and they notice four more things. Now we have more of a case that we can start to support law enforcement um with. Um and then you know talking to your medical director about what the policy is around trafficking. Um So that everybody knows what to look for and what to do. But same thing as child abuse and domestic violence and elder abuse, you know, it it falls into that same category. Okay. Thank
1: you. I was just going to say, as a parent of a teen that didn't grow up with technology, it's good to know, like, why are they so susceptible to these uh, traffickers?
0: Like, is there a physiological component behind it or is it just, you know, trauma from growing up? leads them down this path curiosity um
1: yeah. yeah what
3: yeah so there's a couple things um you know we're talking about 15 year olds on average and their frontal cortex so the part of your brain that's not responsible or that is responsible for your decision making it's not fully developed that doesn't happen for years um and in fact your decision making is more being fueled by your emotional emotional part of your brain and so you know we we hear things we get you know hit with these different scams and we're like yeah that's a joke you know this guy's not really offering me a modeling job or a role in a music video um but to a 15 year old that that decision making part that logic part it's just not developed yet and then, if you think about whatever 15-year-old girl wants, you know, she wants to be loved, she wants to be accepted, she wants to be popular, to have a boyfriend. Um, things along those lines make them much more susceptible to to this type of predator, um, who's just trying to find that vulnerability um, that he can exploit. And so, oftentimes, our young people post so much of their heart and soul on the internet these days. Um, you know, so if she posts my mom's the worst or school sucks that allows a predator to get in there and to fix that problem. Mm-hmm. Your mom sucks. So does mine. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, moved out at 15 and look how good I'm doing. I dropped out of school. You don't need school. I'll take care of you. And, yeah. um, you know, allows them to kind of start to fill that gap. And when their brain just isn't functioning, you know, at the level that an adult brain is just because developmentally they're not there. Um, it makes it harder for them to see the risk in that. Instead they are they're running off that emotional brain and they're like, Oh, this sounds fun. This sounds better than my current situation. Um, you know, he seems fine, he seems safe, he loves me. And we would typically reality, call that,
0: Yeah. And we would typically call that like immaturity, right? Like that's mm-hmm. kind of the easy way for parents to mm-hmm. categorize that. But there's really a physiological component of the you know, brain growth happening that is going to affect the way they can think through this. You know, more mm-hmm. than just pass this emotional moment, right? Like, well, I really don't want to be doing that. You know, <laughs> right down. You know, in a yeah. Week, but. yeah.
1: And they're so used to being codependent. I mean, they depend on their providers mm-hmm. for food, money, clothes, everything, and so yeah. it seems like that trauma bond would be really easy to to form when it comes to you do this for me even though I'm mean to you, I'm going to give this back to you. And then emotionally they're really invested.
3: Totally. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I think too, like if you, you know, for any parents that potentially thinks that their kids being groomed, um, I think going at it from, Hey, this behavior isn't okay. Instead of this person isn't safe. will speak to them a little bit better because Again, remember, they're falling in love with this person or they think this person cares about them. So speaking negatively about the person is not going to get you anywhere with them versus pointing out, hey, this behavior isn't normal um, is really, really kind of a better approach to take. And giving them the space to say, hey, I don't agree with this decision. I don't agree with you talking to them. Um, but not giving them an ultimatum or creating any kind of wedge is going to protect them in the future because it doesn't allow the trafficker to step in. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, your parents took your cell phone away? I'll get you a cell phone. Um, you know, something like that. That ultimatum of if you keep talking to them, I'll take your phone or I'll take your car or whatever, allows them to solve a problem. So really focusing on why the behavior isn't okay versus the person um, will go a long way with that 15-year-old brain. That's really good. Thank you.
1: That's
0: awesome. Well, we're already at an hour, um, for the most part here. (laughs) So, um, we've got to wrap it up, but one thing I did want to touch base on, I know you guys are a 501 C three and I know that guardian groups mission, you know, taken right off their website is to prevent and disrupt the sex trafficking of women and children while enabling partners to identify victims and predators in the United States. And so, um, I think your guys's mission is very, very much worthwhile. Um, Supporting, And so if any of our listeners want to um, give or donate, how can they do that for you guys?
2: Yeah, there's a, there's a donate portion on our website. Um, they can do monthlies. They can do a one time. Um, there, there are a number of ways that are explained there on, you know, how they can donate and if they want to just help um, there are always opportunities that we have for people to help with communities, to help with training to help gather the community in order to do some of these uh, types of things that we've talked about. So there's a, there's a number of sort of venues that are on the website.
0: Okay. And that's guardian Correct. Um, yeah, yeah, that's right.
2: Awesome.
0: Awesome. Well, Andrea and Nate, thank you guys so much for your time and for really for what you guys do and for educating us. Um, yes. And absolutely. I know that I've taken home a, a few pearls, so to speak, that are going to help me with my uh, assessments on scene and just looking at the bigger picture of scene safety and, you know, looking beyond the patient complaint and mm-hmm. what's going on with yes. that, seeing if there's really something else going on. But um, again, thank you guys for what you do and for Guardian Group. And yeah, you guys are awesome. Keep doing what you're doing.
2: Thank you.
0: Thanks, guys.
3: Thanks for having
2: us. Yeah, thanks very much.
0: All right. You guys have a good one and uh, we'll catch everybody on the next episode.